Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that as we come together and we meet together and discuss the things regarding your word, that we are discussing the very things that you have given for us, that what you have in the Bible is your very revelation from the almighty God to mankind, that where you reveal to us who you are, that you allow us to have insight into who you are and your character, into your plan of salvation, and you invite us into that plan. Lord, we live in a time where uh, so many things are, are questioned about your word and whether it can be trusted. And as our faith is built so solidly upon the, the assurance that this is your word, we pray that uh, if we have come with any still uh, residual doubts about whether or not uh, what we have is actually your word, uh, that you might achieve that, that conviction that we can be absolutely certain that this is your word, uh, that we may cherish it, and that we may respond faithfully to it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As many of you know, I do love coffee. Um, I must admit that in the the rush of today, I haven't even had coffee. So this is a caffeine-free sermon. So so watch out. I've often said I reckon it should be an essential quality in terms of qualifications for pastors that they also be trained baristas. Um, it's a wonderful skill to have. I did, did mine when I was studying at Bible College with the intention of working in a coffee shop while I was studying and never actually did it. I just benefited my fellow college mates and, my, and now my house and anyone who comes to visit. But when it came to getting machines like that, no, nah, I just don't want to go down to Harvey Norman and get something there. I was like, I want something that's going to make a good coffee. So I did all your research, reading your reviews, get a coffee machine, still going strong. It's the only one that company makes that's not a commercial machine because I wasn't going to go all out and get the 15 amp power and have it plumbed in. I think that was getting a bit too excitable, particularly when we ended up moving because you end up with big holes in bench and stuff. But when I was looking at Sarah's, I was like, what would you like for Christmas? And I was aware that there was this thing that improved the machine that I already had that gave you a lot more control over certain elements. And I thought, I'd like one of those, please. And so that's what I got for Christmas. All excited. It's going to save me a lot of time. It's all going to be consistent the way I make my coffee. That box and the instructions are still just sitting on the floor and I think in our bedroom. (laughs) This thing that I was so excited, I thought, this is going to make me complete my coffee experience. I've got it. I've got the things explaining how to do it. It may not even be that difficult. Haven't done a thing. And sometimes I wonder if we treat the Bible the same way. We've got it. We know it's what we need. We know what's good for us. But do we tap into it? Do we actually take hold of it and use it for which it was given and apply it to our lives? Up to our second part in Is the Bible God's Word? If you weren't here last week to give you a little bit of a recap of what what we covered... We looked at the beginning from 2 Timothy 3.16, that thing says that all scripture is inspired or breathed out by God, that we can know that, that from Paul's perspective, all of the Old Testament, because that's what he was referring to as scripture at that time, is the very word of God. It has come out as God's word. We've already also seen from 2 Peter the idea that it's none of it's man's idea. This is the word of God coming through people as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We also saw the way in which we could make a a comparison between what the biblical writers wrote and even that being the very word of God. We saw examples from Genesis where there are things that Moses is writing, yet when they're quoted in the New Testament, it doesn't say Moses says, it says, and God said. 
We saw also that even in the first century, in the time when the New Testament writings were written, there are references to the quotes of Jesus taken from Luke's gospel already being described as being scripture in this very short period of time. And all our New Testament writings are written in the first century. And also Peter spoke about how some people took Paul's teachings and twisted them like they do the other scriptures. So there's even in the time that Peter is writing an understanding that plural, more than one of Paul's letters were considered by the early church to be considered scripture. Now, one of the things that we looked at last week is, you know, you hear claims people make all the time that you know, your Bible and all your manuscripts, there's so many differences between them, you can't trust them. How do you know what should be in there? We put out that claim, and it was a factual claim, that between the manuscripts there could be between 300,000 and 400,000 discrepancies, which sounds like it sort of knock you off your perch sort of stuff. But then when we actually looked at what makes up those sort of statistics... We saw that there's actually 5,700 manuscripts, so more manuscripts you got, the more likely there is to be discrepancies. Then we saw what was the nature of those discrepancies, and it was things like spelling mistakes. Oh no, I don't know if I can trust this anymore. Someone possibly leave, skipping and missing a word, missing a line. Changes of the ordering of the wording, which in Greek doesn't make any difference anyway. And we saw what were the two major things, and we thought... As long as you don't pick up snakes or drink poison, we're pretty good to trust it. So we saw had, had confidence in the Old Testament. We saw that Luke's gospel and Paul's letters were considered to be scripture. But this week we're probably looking a little bit more at the New Testament. And when it comes to people making criticisms of the Bible, this is usually where people target it. That either it's been changed, that we've got the wrong books in there. So today we're going to look at how did we end up with these particular 27 books we got? Who decided? How did they decide? If they believed that they really were the very word of God in scripture, these writings of the apostles, why don't we have the originals? Surely they would have kept them. And thirdly, what about all these other historical gospels that people keep finding that making the way in the news and the front of the newspapers? Do they give us new insights and should they actually belong in the Bible? So firstly, how was the New Testament formed? Didn't know how to give that a title. How do we know we've got the right books? Whatever you want to call it. Now there's two big claims that we hear when we hear people talking about these things when they want to criticise. They'll either say there were multiple versions of Christianity, each had their own different sets of books and teachings and beliefs and who knows which one's right. Or you'll take someone else who has a different position who'll say that now, your Bible wasn't put together until 367 AD. That's hundreds of years later. Clearly, the early Christians didn't believe these things to be Scripture. And as with some of the other claims last week, some of the biggest problems there is not so much what those statements say, but it's also what they don't say and what they imply. Because that second statement that you know, the New Testament was described and listed as those 27 books in 367 gives you the impression... That before then, no one recognised these things to be scripture. But as we've already seen the examples given, that Luke's gospel was already quoted as being scripture, as were some of Paul's writings, even during the time the New Testament was being written. So firstly, this idea there were different Christianities, each with different sets of books and beliefs. Last week, I introduced you to a um, very interesting man, Bart Ehrman, very well studied, knows all sorts of things, And he writes extremely well. He writes popular books that 
ultimately try to undermine the authority of the Bible. In one of his Bibles, lost scriptures, books that didn't make it into the New Testament, in other words, a book where he puts forward an idea, he reckons, we've got the wrong books in our New Testament, we should have other ones in there. He writes this, this is his version of events. Only one set of early Christian beliefs emerged as the victorious and heated disputes over what to believe and how to live that were raging in the early centuries of the Christian movement. These beliefs and the group who promoted them came to be thought of as orthodox and alternative views such as the view that there are two gods or that the true God did not create the world or that Jesus was not actually human or not actually divine, etc., came to be labelled as heresy. Probably for good reason, just for the record. Moreover, the victors in the struggles to establish Christian orthodoxy not only won their theological battles, they also rewrote the history of the conflict. Later, readers then naturally assumed that the victorious views had been embraced by the vast majority of Christians from the very beginning, all the way back to Jesus and his closest followers, the apostles. You can see why this guy's work, uh, not only do they sell well, but they cause a lot of problems. He writes in a way that sounds so convincing. He's got a PhD and stuff, and you think, man, he should know what he's talking about. And here he is saying, no, these big bullies just basically, they said, this one's we want. They overtook all the other views and discredited other things that we potentially should listen to. But is that the way the New Testament was formed? That some bullies just decide, no, we want these ones, we're going to reject this bit? Well, I think the bullies, they're calling bullies, Actually, the way in which they decided which was the right books is kind of along probably good statements, along what is truth, what is consistent with what God has already revealed himself to be in the Old Testament. It's probably a good way of measuring whether you're going to call things like, are there two gods, or was Jesus not God or, or not? Probably a good means by which you can do, accept some things and not accept some others. So what qualified Christian writing of Scripture? I mean, Christians write lots of things. How do you say that one's just someone, something at a Christian rate? What makes this one scripture? Well, the first thing they looked for was apostolic authority. That is, that what was being written was either written by an apostle or contained the teaching of the apostles. Say, for example, you'll see that like Mark, for example, in terms of the Gospels, um, historic. Historical sources say that Peter was his source as an apostle and, and same for Luke, that Paul was his source. So one principle alone is that to be counted as scripture, they had to be early writings in the times of the apostles. In other words, first century. And all of the New Testament letters and, and books are from 55 roughly to 95. By the apostles. Now, Old Testament, you hear the word prophets as in those who spoke authoritatively on behalf of God. But why specifically apostles? Well, if you consider the way in which Jesus spoke to the apostles, John chapter 15, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So he's telling these guys, the Holy Spirit is going to bear witness to you about me. And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So there's this commissioning of, I'm going to send my spirit. He's going to reveal to you things regarding me and I am commissioning you that you bear witness to the things that I have revealed to you. So they are given that authority to speak and declare things on behalf of God in that sense. Now some might ask, what about the delay? Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father around about 30 AD, somewhere around that time. 
And the first year New Testament books are like 20, 25 years later than that. Why the delay if you genuinely believe this was important stuff? Well, I think that's part of the part of the issue. It was important stuff. If you've got the message of salvation that applies to every single person, that's a message you want to get out and spread pretty quickly, don't you? And we think, why don't you just flick a few emails around? You've got to copy these things by hand if you want to do that in any written form. But then when you get to the 60s, you see a lot of the apostles are starting to be killed for their faith and their beliefs. And that's when you see a lot of the writing really begin to escalate because they realise this is important teaching. People are being killed. We need to write this stuff down. This needs to get passed on. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that an apostle wrote, if they, if they were an apostle, if they wrote something in the first century, we automatically consider it to be scripture. We know that Paul wrote other stuff. Paul, Paul at least wrote another letter to Corinthians before the one that we have. So we look for that as being one of the many things that has the apostolic authority. It's the teaching of the apostles, either by or someone else writing the teachings of the apostles. Another indication we have is the way in which these teachings or letters were received and used by the early church. The fact that you have to write out something by hand, which takes a lot of time, and we see the way in which the manuscripts spread geographically over such a massive area, tells you something. Like, I don't know about you, but have you ever sat down to write out a book by hand because it was no longer in print? The only time you would do that would be if you thought it was important enough to pass it on. You're not just going to cop it out by hand just because you've got nothing to do on a Sunday Arvo. So the fact that the early church received, copied and spread geographically over large areas and used it as teaching material for their churches is also something else that is a good sign of what is actually the word of God at work. We see something of that popularity. Now, first century, you've got no photocopier. You want to spread this around, you've got to write it by hand and transport it by hand or by foot, by horse, whatever you want to do. That alone doesn't prove that it's scripture, but it does show you that it is valuable to the church. But did nobody consider these New Testament writings to be scripture until 367? No, as we saw, and I don't need to go back to them, we've got that quote there where Jesus is quoted from Luke and also the reference to Paul's letters as scripture. So how do we know outside of the Bible whether or not we should consider these scripture? Or should we just have a little bit of Luke and, and some of Paul's writings guess which ones Peter is referring to? Well, we have in historical writings as well as the writings that early Christians give us a very good indication of how they viewed these writings, what they considered scripture, what they said about them. Ignatius is a man who died about 110 AD, so living at a very similar time. Early in his writings, even at this point in time, knowing it takes a long time, these things are written in all different geographical places. You've got to try and get them around, copy them around. He had access to enough things that he makes references to Matthew, Luke, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. Now, if something was produced today and someone just referred to that many, think, oh, so easy to publish things and, and get copies of it. That's not a big issue. But when things need to be copied by hand, are being written over a large geographical area to think that any one person who died in 110, when the last of the New Testament books were written around about 95, has access to these books, tells you that these books were taken, they were copied, they were spread because they were seemed to be important. Justin Martyr, writing about 150, 160, 
Uh, he was a teacher in both Ephesus and Rome's and Rome. Doesn't quote the what the names of the gospels are, but he refers to these memoirs which were drawn up by the apostles and those who followed them. So the apostles, Matthew and John, and followers, Mark and Luke. It is recorded his sweat fell down like drops of blood while he was praying. A reference from, from Luke's gospel. We're going to do this for each of these historical writers. We're not going to have time to go through it in a hurry. It's going to be a bit of an information overload. But in terms of Justin Martyr, well, I'm going to do this format for every single one of them. Down here we have the on the left the list of New Testament books. The ones that are in black are those which were quoted by the writer who we're speaking about. And the ones in red are ones that they haven't specifically quoted. So Justin Martyr, you've got all of the Gospels there, plus Revelation. Irenaeus, writing 175 to 195 AD, so he was a bishop in Lyons in south of France, and so this is still within 100 years of the last of the books written, and again, they've got to be distributed and copied and all those things. Irenaeus grew up under Polycarp. Polycarp was taught personally by the Apostle John, so there's a very close connection there. Even at his stage, he makes a very emphatic statement that there are only four Gospels. This is a very, there's a lot of very early statements. You know, here are all these things about a gospel of Thomas, gospel of Judas, gospel of Philip. They, the early Christian writers were very clear. There are only four. As he's combating various other heresies, he writes, it is not possible that the gospels can be either more or fewer in number than there are. For since there are four zones of the world in which we live and four principal winds, while the church is scattered throughout the world and the pillar of the ground of the church is the gospel and the spirit of life. It is fitting that she should have four pillars, breathing out immortality on every side and vilifying men afresh, from which is fact. It is evident the word, the artificer, someone can explain that word for me, he sitteth upon the cherubim and contains all things. He who was manifested to men has given us the gospel under four aspects, abound together by one spirit. So his point isn't, because there's four ends of the earth, that therefore there must be four Gospels. His point is, there are four Gospels, and it is fitting because they use this terminology of four ends of the earth and four winds to speak of a matter of, of completion. Irenaeus names and quotes from all of the Gospels, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as being those four Gospels that he speaks about. And when you look again at that list in here, remember this guy is writing very, very early on, 175 to 190, and already, you look down that column, there are now only two things not in that list that he quoted as being scripture. There goes your idea that it wasn't until the 4th century that people were starting to consider these books to be scripture, isn't it? This guy's 2nd century and has quoted all of them, even though they've got to get copied by hand and distributed around, except for two of them at this point in time. And it was just Philemon and 3rd John, pretty small books. But the New Testament writings, he quotes 1,075 times. I forgot to mention this one here. You've got a middle column, which I do on the others. There are two other books that he quotes from. Let's briefly talk about them. First Clement and Shepherd of Hamas, which aren't included in our Bibles. Third guy, Clement of Alexandria, 155 to 220 AD. Now we're in Egypt. So again, geographically, it's spread a long way. He confirms the same things. There's four Gospels. In his first book of Matthew's Gospel, Maintaining the Canon of the Church, if you hear that word canon, it doesn't mean something's going to go boom. Canon is just a word that means like a list of things. So when people are talking about the canon of Scripture, they're talking about the list of books that, that belong in there. 
He testifies that he knows only four Gospels, writing as follows, Among the four Gospels, which are the only indisputable ones of the Church of God under heaven, which I have learnt by tradition that the first was written by Matthew, who was a publican, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it was prepared for the events from Judaism and published in the Hebrew language. The second is Mark, who composed it according to the instructions of Peter. So there you see this idea that it's Peter being Mark's source. Who in the Catholic epistle acknowledges him as a son, saying, The church is a Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and as doth Marcus, my son. And the third by Luke, the gospel commanded by Paul. So there's with the idea that um, Paul was Luke's source and composed for Gentile converts. Last of all, that by John. So we got again very emphatic statements. He's aware there are other gospels. There are aware of other things claiming to be gospels. He says, there are four, these are the ones that have been passed down. These are the ones that we have used and recognised to be satisfactory and very much the word of God. To see Clement's work there, again, you see the majority of the books of the New Testament in there. There's a few there that, that he doesn't have, a few more than, uh, than previous. But the other thing you'll notice is he's got a lot of other writings that he does quote. A lot more than any of the others. And often people say, oh, Clement... Maybe he's onto something. Maybe look at all these books that he's quoting. But let it be said that all these other books that were written, and they're often written by Christians, contain some good things in them. They're not the word of God, but it doesn't mean that every single sentence is, is false. Like if I quote something in a sermon that's not from the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is indeed wrong. And to put things into perspective, the Gospels that we do have in the Bible, he quoted 1,672 times. As to these other writings, he quoted 16 times to give you an idea of what he thought was actually important as opposed to what he's making a side reference to. Tertullian, 160 to 225 AD. Now we're in Cathars in Africa, Tunisia. So we're covering a huge area. These writings are being spread. Again, once again, most of the New Testament books, you'll start to notice there's a bit of a habit in particular books that seem to be less often referred to. Second Peter's often not referred to. James, Second John, um, and, and Philemon's also disappears on a number of people's lists. The first time we have someone who listed, put together a list of New Testament books is 180. It's called the Muratorian Karen. You don't need to know the name of, of that. But this earliest list, 180, so in less than 100 years after the last of the New Testament books is written, you have 22 out of the 27 books of the New Testament written. So you can, you can thoroughly be sure that when people say no one decided these books were scripture until the 4th century, factually not even slightly close. Origin, again we're in Egypt. In his homilies, that's his sermons on Joshua, he refers to all 27 of the books. I'm not going to read through that, but basically he goes through and refers to every 27 of the books that we have in our New Testament. The time when people say this is when the New Testament was formed, and I kept referring to 367 AD, is in a letter written by Athanasius. And it's the first time we actually have the word New Testament used. Reading from that letter, continuing, I must without hesitation mention the scriptures of the New Testament. That they are the following, the four Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. After them, the Acts of the Apostles. 
and the seven so-called Catholic epistles of the apostles, namely one of James, two of Peter, three of John, and then after one of Jude. In addition, there are 14 epistles of the Apostle Paul written in the following order. The first to the Romans, then two to the Corinthians, and then after these, one to the Galatians, following the one to the Ephesians, then the one to the Philippians, then to the Colossians, then two to Thessalonians, and the epistle of Hebrews, and then immediately two to Timothy, one to Titus, and lastly one to Philemon. Yet the revelation of John. These are the springs of salvation in order that he who is thirsty may fully refresh himself with the words contained in them. In them alone is the doctrine of piety proclaimed. Let no one add anything to them or take anything away from them. But for the sake of greater accuracy, I add, being constrained to write, that there are also other books beside these, which have not been indeed been put into the canon, but have been appointed by the fathers as reading matter. For those who have come forward and which to be instructed in the doctrine of piety, the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Sirach, Esther, Judith, Tobias, the so-called teaching of the apostles, that's the Didache, and the shepherd, which is the shepherd of Hamas. So he says, now these things, worthwhile reading, they're not scriptures, but he's also saying, if you read them, that's fine, just remember they're, they're the writings of men. And he goes on, which I forgot to put up there, and although, beloved, the former are in the canon and the latter serve as reading matter, yet mention is nowhere made of of the Apocrypha, that's these other books, rather than that they are a fabrication of the heretics, who write them down when it pleases them to generously assign to them an early date of composition in order that they might be able to draw upon them supposedly ancient writings and have occasion to deceive the guileless. In other words, he makes a very clear sentence. There's 27 books, these are the ones... There are other books that believers have written, worthwhile reading. Read them the same way you would do any book you get from a Christian bookstore. They're only as valuable as they are in terms of the extent which they line up to what God has already said in advance. So did it take a long time to establish what belonged to the New Testament? No, it didn't. You've got Luke and some of Paul's writings written by the New Testament writers themselves describing them as scripture. And in 180, less than 100 years, which is a very short time when you've got to copy by hand and transport things around, you've got 22 out of 27 in the Muratorian canon. What is missing in some of those lists that people who weren't so sure about are 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Philemon. They're the ones that seem to be missing the most, and James. Do you want to know something? Even if every single one of those books didn't end up in the New Testament, there's not a single Christian teaching that would be lacking. There is nothing contained in any of those books that is not repeated elsewhere in other biblical writings. So we can have without doubt that what the New Testament churches and the early churches use and refer to as scripture are the books that we have. The only one that they were slightly more interested in was the, the shepherd of Hamas in First Clement. So how do we test that they are written in the first century, either by the apostles or contain the teaching of the apostles? That we see how they are used, that they are used, copied and, and taught from by the early church. But also the content of it tells you something about whether or not something should be the word of God. Now it's, it are these words that have brought us to salvation. It's important that a book, if it claims with the word of God, actually has to be consistent. If it doesn't match up with what God has already revealed in the Old Testament, you can pretty quickly reject it. And that is true with the New Testament books we have. They are consistent with what's written in the Old Testament. The books that were rejected were not consistent with what God has already revealed. 
In a minute we're going to have a look at what's in some of these other writings. But Sorry for that big massive historical information. But why no originals? Now if the early church believed that the apostles wrote things, these were scripture, surely you would treasure those above all else. You'd never get rid of them. As we reminded last week, we do not have original manuscripts of any historical writing. No one questions Plato. No one questions all of those other writers because we don't have the original ones. But there's other factors too. Up until 310 AD, we have far less manuscripts in that time period. We only have 50 or either full or part manuscripts at that point in time out of the 5,700 manuscripts. The oldest we have is from 125 AD, which is a very small fragment. That's the entirety of what they have. Uh, taken from John's Gospel, from John chapter 18. So why don't we have originals? There's a number of reasons that contribute to that. One is that when Christians were killed for their faith, their scriptures were burned with them. And as you know, again, it takes a lot of time to write things by hand. So when a Christian was killed and they were persecuted, not only were they killed, their scriptures were killed, taken and burned with them. Secondly, a good reason why we don't have much before the year 310 is that Diocletian, who was one of the uh, Roman emperors, actually issued a decree that Christians were to be killed, all scriptures were to be burnt, and all churches were to be destroyed. That was the that was the rule under the Roman Empire that everything had to be gotten rid of. If anything, the fact that we have scriptures today and that we and the people still held on to them and valued them so highly tells us how much the people did value the scriptures, even when their life was on the line that we still have and God still preserved his word. The third reason, and it's also a very good one, they're written on papyrus. Papyrus is plant material. It don't last real good. They're biodegradable. They break down. You put them in the ground, in a year you've got nothing. Hence why we don't have any in any of the other historical writings either because these types of materials just do not last. But lastly, in the novelty, what about all these other Gospels they find? Should we have Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas? It's funny, all of these books that make big headlines are never the ones that the early Christian writers talked about other than occasionally referring to them as heresy. There was never even the slightest consideration of using these books and as we'll see with the exception of First Clement which was actually not a bad one of these sort of things none of them were written in the first century. First Clement was another written uh, letter written to the church in Corinth and the majority of it is really just a collection of other biblical quotes. In other words, if they're not written in the first century all these other books that people claim should be in there were not written during the time of the apostles or during the time when anyone's alive to either verify what they're writing about is true or not. Give you a quick overview of some of the books that are not included. First two I'll do the ones that got the most slight bit of consideration by the early church. The Shepherd of Hamas. We heard that, saw that on the list a few times. Some people thought they quoted from it. Um, it's basically a series of five visions given to Hamas a guy and a series of parables and sayings, mainly sort of moral, ethical teaching. It's nothing too horrendous in there. I've read it, but it's, again, read it as you do the, as the words of a believer. Um, not everything necessarily the word of God. The Epistle of Barnabas, written middle of the second century. So again, um, it's not actually the writings of Barnabas, nor is it apostolic in that sense. 
nor was it listed by any of the early Christian writers as being something that should be considered a scripture. The majority of what it dealt with were um, how to deal with the Old Testament from both a Jewish and Gentile perspective. Now, Gospel of Thomas, he's, this is the one that people are talking about. Written 140 to 220 AD. In other words, this isn't written by Thomas. Surprise, surprise. Now, when you hear Gospel of Thomas, you think, oh, yeah, it's going to be like Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It tells us all about Jesus' life, what he did. Well, it's not actually a, 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 rec- a record of what happened. It's, it's a collection of sayings of Jesus. Some of them may actually be sayings of Jesus, but I can guarantee you not all of them are, and nor should it be considered scripture. Remember hearing a story about someone who was doing a lecture of this to a group of Christians, and some of the Christians like, this sounds fantastic, we should have this one. But someone who'd read the Gospel of Thomas and was concerned by the fact that everyone was getting so on board with this said, can you please tell me what the last saying of Jesus is in this book? And at which point the person presenting sheepishly read the last saying from the Gospel of Thomas. Tell me if you think this is genuinely the word of God. Simon Peter said to him, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself, myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. I think the content alone is pretty clear. You don't need to ask, okay, when was this dated? Who wrote this? That's not the word of God. It's pretty clear. You see big things written about it. Sounds exciting. Yeah. Oh, we've got something new, but there's a good reason why it wasn't included. Gospel of Philip. Again, not ever considered by the early church and because of its dates, 175 to 225, it's dated at, not written by Philip. Has this famous quote. As for the wisdom that is called the barren, she is the mother of the angels and the companion of the saviour is Mary Magdalene. But Christ loved her more than all the other disciples and used to kiss her often on the mouth. That usually gets translated often on the mouth, not even in the, the manuscript, but if you add that, it sounds more exciting. The rest of the disciples were offended by it and expressed disapproval. Yeah, some interesting stuff. Gospel of Judas. This one, back in 2006, it got a lot of talk. At earliest, it could be around about 140 AD. Again, um, not written by Judas, but this one puts forward Judas as being the hero of the story. That Judas was the only one who really understood what Jesus needed and therefore he, by betraying him, did what Jesus really needed. We should be thankful for him. It also contains other material where Jesus wasn't raised bodily, makes a mockery of communion. And even though in 2006 this was a big exciting thing in the news, like, man, no one's ever discovered this before. Um, yes, they did. Irenaeus, writing in 180 AD, they declared that Judas the traitor was thoroughly acquainted with these things, that he alone, knowing the truth, as others, no others did, accomplished the mystery of the betrayal. By him all things, both earthly and heavenly, were thus thrown into confusion. They produce a fictitious history of this kind, which they style the Gospel of Judas. So it was not a new discovery in 2006. It was very well known about in the second century, and it was declared to be false, even then. Gospel of Jesus' wife. 
Remember they found us five years ago, 2012. Harvard scholar Karen King comes across this little bit of thing and it speaks about Jesus having a wife and the newspapers, everyone's all over it. There's one line where it, where it says, my wife, there's not much in it. The overall size of it is about the size of a business card to give you a bit of an idea what's there. But did this Karen King who discovered it, did she think Jesus was actually married based on this? Well, this is her own writings on it. This is the only extant ancient text which explicitly portrays Jesus as referring to a wife. It does not, however, provide evidence that the historical Jesus was married. So she's the one that everyone's focusing upon. She says, this is an evidence that he was married. Given the late date of the fragment and probable date of original composition only in the second half of the second century, nonetheless, if the second century date of composition is correct, the fragment does provide direct evidence that claims about Jesus' marital status first arose over a century after his death in the context of inter-Christian controversies over sexuality, marriage and discipleship, just as Clement of Alexandria described some Christians who insisted that Jesus was not married. This fragment suggests that other Christians of that period were claiming that Jesus was. In other words, he says, if, even if it's written in the second century, all it tells you is that some people thought he was, even though everyone else said he wasn't. And they did all the research and they go, oh, guess what? This did come from the second century. We've tested the papyrus. The ink on it was 50 years old. So it was an old bit of papyrus that someone has got, but 50 years ago, someone's put something together, someone finds it, whoo-hoo. 50 years old writing on old bits of paper. And lastly, Gospel of Peter. It's kind of like a narrative account of um, Jesus' death and resurrection, kind of fills in details in between. Has Jesus not feeling any pain on the cross as though he's not a human? He comes out of the out of the tomb as a giant and his head's up in the clouds. Not only does he come out of the tomb, then the cross follows him and the cross talks. It's not hard to figure out what does belong and what doesn't belong. History shows, the early Christians show, the way in which things were distributed and used and quoted as scripture. We have very early evidence that this was the word of God. This is the pillars upon which our church was built. So why do we have 20, the 27 books we've got? Because it contains the teaching of the apostles who were commanded and commissioned by Christ to bear witness. Because they were written in the first century when people alive could either say this happened or it didn't. Because they're the only books that were used as scripture by the early Christians. And they're the only books that are consistent with who God has revealed himself to be in the other scriptures, the Old Testament. So we can be totally confident that we have the right books. When you hear people say your Bible was put together late, well, actually, they use those things in Scripture much earlier. And people say you should put these other books in there. These weren't written in the time frame that qualifies them, plus their contents is ridiculous. But as you read that history, apart from there being a massive overlay of historical dates and people's old names you don't know, there is a sense of the value that people had on these words. You know, that they, they were risking their very own life just to have it. They were killed for it and their scriptures were burned. Yet God preserved them and they kept copying and copying, spreading geographically over huge distances and huge time, copying by hand. Now it tells you something about the book too. The fact that you, someone wants to issue an edict banning these things tells you something. This book's got power to it. 
There's something about these writings that is power and changes the people who are committed to it. And that God has preserved his word. We live in a time, though, where it's so readily available. And I hope we don't forget the value of what we have. That what we have is indeed the very word of God. That people would happily risk their life because they wanted to make sure that it was carried on so that you would have a Bible today. It's one thing just to recognise that it's accurate, it's reliable, it's historical. It was given for a purpose. To correct, to encourage, to exhort, train in righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work. If I think about my biggest struggles in life, my biggest low points, it's not because the word of God hasn't spoken how and what on those issues. And it's not even that I don't even know what the Bible says about them. It's that I haven't trusted them. Now, when I have this word, this is the word of God. This isn't just like another book that's got someone else's ideas to consider. This is what God said. And I don't know how many times, much to my own failure and my own detriment, have I failed to trust even the stuff that I do know, never mind the stuff that I still am yet to discover. Value what you've got. Know what you have is the word of God and respond to it as the word of God. Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that not only did you protect and preserve your word, but we thank you as we uh, think through history and the way in which um, people fought so diligently to make sure that uh, this very word that leads to salvation might be in our hands today, that we might uh, know the very revelation of God to man. Uh, Lord, help us for... Um, the complacency that we sometimes have uh, from sometimes being so familiar with it and the fact that we can just get one if we lose one we just go buy another one uh, but Lord that you have given it to, to instruct us to, to train us in righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work Lord we want to be trained by you help us to be a people who, who look to hear what you have to say to us through your word and to be happily trained and instructed by it, that we might be equipped. I give you thanks for these, and ask your spirit to lead us in these ways. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. That was just me checking with...